0: Today's episode is proudly sponsored by Radical Polymers. Nation, running a water treatment business is hard. Dealing with your suppliers shouldn't be. And when I deal with the fine folks over at Radical Polymers, I have always felt like I have had a partner. They test things in the environment that we are going to use their products. They also make sure that if I have any questions that I get the answer that I am looking for. Mike and the fine folks over at Radical Polymers. Answer the phones. Folks, when was the last time you actually talked with somebody when you had a technical support question? Well, they make your issues their issues and they get right down to the problem. They offer best-in-class technologies with the first-class support that I just mentioned. Go to ScalingUpH2O.com forward slash radical to find out more. Welcome to Scaling Up, the podcast where we're scaling up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. Nation, my name is Trace Blackmore, and I am coming to you from AWT's technical training event in Seattle, Washington. And folks, this is my absolute favorite thing to do to get together with other water traders that have come to one place to learn more about what they do, to share ideas, to get better, to raise the bar in the industry. I've had so many members of the Scaling Up Nation come up to me and they let me know how much the podcast means to them. They say the podcast has made a difference in their day to day. Most of them have said they don't feel alone anymore. And I know exactly what they're talking about. I remember when all I did was service and it was just me and my car and I just watched the windshield from account to account. Now, it was great when we were talking to customers, but we just have so much windshield time and a lot of us don't know the best way to spend it. And that's where the idea for the podcast came. I thought it was a good idea. You all in the Scaling Up Nation confirmed it. And now we're over 10,000 people listening to the Scaling Up H2O podcast. I am just so incredibly humbled by that number, but I'm also so excited by that number. We have so many people listening to this podcast. It means that we are all caring about this industry and we all want to make it better. You know, some other things that people are coming up to me this week and tell me about is how they've learned something new or a new way to do something on this podcast. Or they were doing the same thing over and over and over again. And then something that either I said or one of my guests said sparked an idea and now they're thinking differently about issues. And that's the real thing with issues. We can't think the same way that we did when we created the issue and expect to significantly solve them. So when we figure out ways to think differently about what we're doing, we are going to make monumentous changing. So many people have also asked me about the Rising Tide Mastermind. And folks, I gotta tell you, this has become one of my favorite times each and every week where I get to get on a call with other members of the Rising Tide Mastermind And we just talk to figure out how we make each other better. We figure out who's having an issue. We discuss that issue. We find out how we train ourselves to ask better questions. And when was the last time you even thought about that? How do you ask questions? And how can you ask better questions so you can help people Make better decisions so you can get better information, so you can get decisions. Well, that's what we're doing. That's one of the many things that we're doing in the Rising Tide Mastermind. The Rising Tide Mastermind, it took off phenomenally well. We filled up two groups as soon as I started talking about it here on Scaling Up H2O. So I have a waiting list that has been started for the third group. Now, when we get that group filled up, we will go ahead and release that and we'll start meeting with our third group. So if you want to learn more about the Rising Tide Mastermind, you can go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind. You can even fill out an application right there on that website. Well, Nation, I told you I am coming to you from Seattle, Washington. And if you are not here, you are missing one of the best water treatment trainings around. Now, if you did not get to come here, you have one more shot. So next month, March 18th through 21st, we are going to do this exact training in Cleveland, Ohio. So if you want to sign up for that, go to awt.org. And all the information about the event will be there. And if you need one more reason to go, folks, I'm going to be there. So come by, let me know what you think of the podcast. Give me some ideas. Give me a high five. I love that. And and just let me know that you're listening to the show. I want to introduce today's guest. And I'm trying to figure out what the best way to introduce Tom Hutchison is to you. Have you ever spoke with somebody in a crowded room, and the person that you're speaking to just makes you feel like you are the only person in that room? Well, that I think best describes today's guest. And of course, I already said his name. His name is Tom Hutchison of HOH. And in case you're wondering, Tom is the father of Reed. Reed Hutchinson was on earlier this year. He was episode 121 and 122. We were actually talking a lot about the training that we are at right now, this very moment, of course, one year ago. And Reed gave all sorts of great advice to why he attended both sessions, how he took notes, what he did before and after, so if you are, heck, if you're here and you're thinking how you can even improve it, go listen to episode 121 and 122, and those are great ways to get the most out of not just the AWT technical training, but really any training that you go to. There's just no doubt about it. Father and son, Reed and Tom are just great people. But today we are talking to Tom. And the reason we're talking to Tom Hutchison is he gave an outstanding presentation at last year's Association of Water Technologies Conference on multi-generational businesses. And folks, I work with a lot of water treatment companies And I also get coached by somebody, you've met him, his name is Tim Fulton, and he has a lot of insight on business. And he's the first to tell me that water treatment has more multi-generational businesses percentage-wise than other company industries that he has seen. So I think that means something. I think it's really cool when families can work together. Well, it's cool when it works. And I know we've talked a lot about that with some other multi-generational business owners, but when it does, it's just fantastic. And that's what he's talking about today. He's talking about what are the items that make it work? What are some things we really need to watch out? And what are some things that we need to do to prepare for what happens next? Folks, I know you are going to enjoy this interview with Tom Hutchison of HOH. My lab partner today is Tom Hutchison of HOH Water Technology. Tom, how are you today, sir?
1: I'm good. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing very well. I want to thank you for coming on Scaling Up H2O. We just saw each other a couple of weeks ago at the Association of Water Technologies Annual Convention and Expo. And you did such a fantastic job presenting a paper on multi-generational businesses. And I just thought, what a great topic to bring on Scaling Up H2O. I presented that idea to you and you were so gracious. You said, absolutely. You would be happy to come on. So thank you for that.
1: Well, thanks for the opportunity.
0: Looking forward to it. And as our audience may or may not be aware, you know, you and I were recording this, but it may not air until a couple of months. It absolutely will air in a couple of months. But we just saw each other at the Association of Water Technologies. So there's a whole bunch that we're going to talk about in this episode that came from that. But before we get started, I wanted to ask you if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself to the audience so they can know you just a little bit better.
1: Okay, well, let's see. Uh, My name's Tom Hutchison, as you said. President, CEO of HOH Water Technology. We um, are a 51-year-old, third-generation business. My dad um, started the company in 1968 in Chicago. We've been a manufacturer with a laboratory facility really that whole time. I worked for the train corporation for a while out of college, and then I decided I started in the family business in 1979, so um, 40 years in the business and uh, have been president of the company since uh, 1989. As I said, third generation business. So uh, part of the reason for me to be interested in the topic and to write the paper was I have a son in the business, Reed, who's now chief operating officer and a son-in-law, Andy, uh, who is our channel partner manager. And um, they're doing great. And so uh, this is an exciting time for us.
0: Now, forty years in the business, you had to have seen things change in water treatment. I'm curious, what are some of those things?
1: Well, I am so old that you know when I started, the by far the most common method for preventing scale and corrosion was to use uh, an acid and zinc chromate solution. So um, it worked really well, right? I mean, chromate remains probably the best corrosion inhibitor, like you know, ever invented. But it has some environmental issues. But I mean, it was super popular back in the '70s and the early '80s up until it was, you know, banned by the EPA. That's a huge change. Just the the um, the technology, the you know, development of organic materials, and also a lot of different biocides. Because also back in the day, pretty much people used chlorine, maybe bromine. You know, now there's there's a lot of effective biocides for unique applications. So that technology's changed, and I think my observation from what it was like when i was in the field you know in the 80s and 90s to what it's like now that has changed a lot too i think customers have changed i think the market has changed it is a different world for water treaters today um i like i'm old right so i think i know all the right answers but i know what the right answers were in 1980 not so sure i know what they are in 2019
0: Well, something that I remember, and I actually remember the tail end of zinc chromate when I was growing up. So I wasn't actually in water treatment then, but I used to service with my father. I think I've shared on the show before that my first water treatment memory was being five years old. And I reached up and I burned myself on my father's hot plate when he was doing a digestion. You know, how long has it been since we've used hot plates, right? But I remember that he would go to a cooling tower or a boiler and he would say, that's not yellow enough. We need to turn the product up. And that's that was pretty much how you did those zinc chromate programs, wasn't it?
1: Well, th- yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, we sold an acid inhibitor blend, so you had to check alkalinities or pH. But yeah, we had a boiler water product for low pressure, low makeup applications where you weren't going to use a lot of chemical but one of the big advantages of chromate was you could just tell by looking at the sight glass what the treatment level was. It was really convenient and simple, but you know those were the good old days. That's what old people uh, reminisce about.
0: I, I, again, I remember when I was very young with that. I never had experience with those programs, but by far, those are the best corrosion inhibitors I think we will ever see. You just can't use them anymore. Yep. Well, I'm curious, could you ever see yourself doing something else, being in water treatment for 40 years?
1: Well, the, uh, in my case, you mean like, what, what are my plans for the next 10 years or what would I have done if I wasn't a water treater? I think I like both questions. Okay, so it might be a complicated answer, but if I wasn't a water treater, I'd probably be in the ministry. Um, we talked about me going to seminary late in life. I, I went to seminary when I was 50. Um, and then I actually was on staff at a church part-time, so I've obviously got a passion for that, and, um, you know, in a different uh, different time, uh, that's what I might have done. I think that um, what I would do differently going forward is probably more to do with, you know, trying to influence and encourage, um, I think, leaders, right? So, it wouldn't have to be necessarily in the water treatment industry, although I'm, I'm grateful for like this opportunity, but you know, I, I think I've developed some skills and have some wisdom around the whole subject of leadership and, and strategy, and, and I really do enjoy that. So the next days of life uh, hopefully in, include some of that.
0: I can't remember who said it, and I'm going to mess the quote up, so I'll paraphrase it, but somebody said the mark of a true leader was how many other leaders they create. Have you heard that?
1: No, but that's definitely a big part of it. I think if, um, and even in terms of building a business, you know, we'll probably get into this more in a minute, but if it all depends on you and if you're not around and you don't have a team that can, you know, pick up the pieces, then at least, you know, for a really important part of your job, you've really not done it well. So yeah, I, I agree with the quote for sure. The, the simple quote I've heard that has I've always resonated with me is, um, you know, you're a leader if people are following you. So, you know, you, you might think you're a leader, but if you turn around and nobody's walking behind you, you might want to check that again.
0: Thomas, I mentioned at the top of the show, we just came back from the Association of Water Technologies Convention, and you gave a presentation about multi-generational businesses. And there's so many topics around that. We had a a young professionals panel where Reed was part of, your son, where people are trying to understand the millennial generation. And then we have so many people in the Association of Water Technologies that is trying to figure out what they're going to do with the next level of their business, how they're going to pass that to someone or what they're going to do with it. I just recently had an expert on this show. His name was Jeff Butler, and he was episode 104 And he spoke all about generational diversity and how now we have four generations working together and they all do things differently. So I am curious, with all that information, what was the reason that you decided you wanted to take your valuable time and interview, I think you interviewed what, 40 different water treaters to figure out what was going on multi-generationally in their businesses and how those businesses were going to pass to the next generation?
1: Well, I think uh, the impetus to do anything was a desire to uh, to give back to AWT. I mean, the, the organization is really benefiting us right now, and we've been a member a long time, and so I was glad to do something in response. And you know, the subject of, of uh, a lasting impact in multi-generational companies, it's really important to me and, and to my family. So, as I said at the beginning, we're a third-generation business, and, you know, the transition is not unique to me, but the transition from my dad to me was successful, I guess, but also very, very bumpy. And we're a lot larger now than we were then, and so the, it gets complicated, I think, that much more to try to transition it to, uh, to my son and my son-in-law. So we've done a lot of work on it. You know, we turned 50 years old last year and, and celebrated our, our past and, and and took that opportunity to strategically plan for the future. So it's a really important subject to all of us here at HOH. And I thought, well, you know, we're not the only company in that position. So yeah, we reached out to 40 companies just to kind of see what their experience has been. Ended up talking to and interviewing 22, which I thought was a really... I mean, the response was great. That's a pretty high percentage, you know. To get pe- some of the, some of these people don't know me from Adam, and yet they were willing to talk and be pretty transparent. So, really enjoyed the process.
0: Did you find by interviewing these twenty two people that most of them had a transition plan already in place?
1: You know, I'd have to look at my notes. I I would say the majority did. I, I was um, I was surprised, and some of the companies I knew, and and was surprised even from what I know of them that they did yeah, I would say more companies had uh, plans in place than did not. But definitely uh, a a minority of companies really had a plan that was, I would say, thorough or really had already kind of been fully executed. So it's, you know, I think it's always a work in progress. But uh, there were more companies than not that were actively working it.
0: What were some of the things that you learned during the interview process?
1: You know, I, I think the biggest thing I learned is that um, and this is AWT members know this in general, but you know you're not unique. And, and when you get to to uh, to talk to people, when you're in kind of relationship, you realize that whatever challenges and and kind of tensions and struggles and opportunities that you have, virtually every other company has. You know, I mean, you can talk about size and all of that, but it often comes down to people. And so I was really just appreciative to hear other people's stories because. You know, I think we learn well from other people's stories. And so I, I, I said this in my talk, I hung up the phone, I think, virtually with every, every interview I did. And I'm like, wow, that was really encouraging. That was good for me because you realize you're not alone. I guess what I learned was everybody is in the same boat regarding the subject.
0: Do you remember any specific conversations that really remind you of that?
1: Yeah, there, there were a few. There were some, uh, you know, sons of business owners, uh, guys who I knew uh, didn't understand uh, all of the the hard work that went into the, the planning with their parents. And they were, you know, very honest to say how hard it was, also how glad they were to be through it. And those conversations were good for me to hear because, uh, you know, we're just kind of in the process, you know, with my son and my son-in-law. So I was really glad to get that encouragement. You know, the other thing that I was encouraged by was... A lot of times, you know, you, you hear statistics that, like, you know, a second generation business, those guys don't care as much as the first because, you know, it's not their baby. You know, they didn't start it. And then it gets worse, right? Third generation people are more entitled. Fourth generation, even more entitled. But man, the, the, the second and third generation people that I talked to were anything but entitled. They, they were committed, they, they had a sense of vision. And, you know, that was really encouraging because, it, it, you know, I, I was struck by, you know how they took the legacy that their parents had created. Uh, they took that really seriously, and it was really benefiting their companies going forward. I had one guy who said, "So there are uncles in the business, and the uncles were not the greatest owners, looking to you know to, to cash out as much as they could of the business, and yet their dad was was a hard worker." And I said to the guy, I "said You know, so you're like a fourth generation owner, and and so how is it that?" You know, that you take your job so seriously and you do it so well. And he said, Well, you know, it was my dad's example. And he got emotional as he said it. He said, He, you know, he, he remembered his dad coming home every night and he would sit in front of the TV, you know, in his, in his chair and he would open up his briefcase. And he described this like us sitting in a chair and opening up our laptop. But he'd watch his dad night after night open up his chair and, and or open up his briefcase sitting in his chair and do his work. Uh, and the impact it had on him and his brother, I mean, His lasting impact, right? It's it's helped them be really successful today. That was one particular story that was really encouraging.
0: Yeah, I have certain memories uh, like that of my father. He was always finishing up paperwork. I remember him doing lab testing on the kitchen table. That's where I actually started my career in water treatment. I made something turn from one color to the other. I had no idea what I was doing at the time.
1: I mean, I worked in production for for my dad, and and uh, m- one of my favorite jobs was driving a truck. I love that because you're out on the road, and you know you're driving a truck, and you think you're a big deal. And then at some point, I said, "Hey, I want to carry a test kit." And I was like, I don't know, 19 maybe or something. I didn't have any experience. But I remember being in an account. It was in Wisconsin, and I was doing like a you know point of use delivery. And while I was there, I took a, I took a sample of, of the tower water just for fun. And, you know, I, I ran the tests, you know, that I was, that I was supposed to run and the readings I got just didn't make any sense to me because they weren't what they were supposed to be. And I didn't know what to do. <laughs> so, um, I called my dad. I said, Hey dad, I don't know what's going on, but these are the readings I'm getting. Um, and it turned out, I don't know, they were probably overfeeding acids so, so there was like zero M alkalinity, you know, or something like that. Um, and it was fun because it was really helpful. So, so my dad called the service guy. The service guy got over there in a couple hours, fixed the problem. But that was my first like testing experience, and and I remember that feeling pretty cool.
0: And it sounds like you saved an account because of their overfeeding acid. That wasn't too long until disaster struck. Never know. I might have. <laughs> you mentioned statistics about companies, and I, I'm pretty sure you did this research. Do you know what the statistics are for companies that have handed over to another generation on how well they actually survive?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not uh, the data is not encouraging. It's something like 50% of second-generation businesses you know, are successful. I think I want to say 15% of third-generation businesses are successful. And then 5% are fourth generation that, that, that make it. So the odds are stacked against you. And it, it points to the need to be intentional you know, about transition.
0: Do you think, in your opinion, that that is what the issue is? People aren't intentional. And then by default, the transition happens. And that's why they're not successful.
1: I think that's exactly the reason. I don't have the data. My, my son-in-law, who's part of this family business council through Loyola University, said uh, in one of his classes, the reasons business don't make it to the next generation is not because their product stopped working or because their service stopped being effective. It's, it's virtually always because of a relationship uh, you know, breakdown in the organization.
0: I'm curious, was there something you heard over and over again during your interviews?
1: If I was going to summarize it, a good number of people that have been successful would say it like this, this was really, really, really hard, and I'm really, really glad I did it. Oh, there you go. So, you know, there were some companies who aren't being intentional yet. And again, my dad was not intentional. So this is not to cast any stones. We're all in the same boat. But there were a few people who said, yeah, I don't think this is going to be that hard. And was in my place to offer commentary or advice? But, you know, I'm I'm thinking, well, yeah, it's actually going to be really hard (laughs) because I kept turning that over and over again. I also know what it was like, you know, when my dad transitioned to me, which was really pretty bad. But yeah, I think the general sense is this is really, really hard, and it's it's really, really worth it. And for me, I mean, there is nothing more important with regards to HOH than for me to make sure that I've, I've properly transitioned this to the next generation because nothing else matters. After.
0: Was there anything that you heard that really surprised
1: you? The one comment I got that was surprising, but surprising in a very good way. When I called the individual, we, we set up the interview, you know, and I send him an email with the questions, and he gave so much thought to the questions, and it was really around the family dynamic, so that was really important to him, and he had three main points which i I, I can't remember to tell you now, but what I was surprised by by the depth of um of insight he had, so yeah, I think maybe if i was if I was going to say surprise trace, it'd be like I was surprised at how deeply so many people have actually thought about this subject it, it again, that was very exciting and encouraging to me.
0: Well, I will say I was in the audience when you were delivering this presentation and I sat around several people that were part of the interview process and occasionally you would put a quote up and they would say, I told him that, that was my quote. Everybody was so proud of your being in your presentation.
1: Well, I tried to keep it anonymous, but if they were going to self-identify, that's, uh, you know, I can't.
0: (laughs) You can't help that. My next question is, after all this interviewing, uh, I'm sure you found some things that you thought were interesting, some things you didn't think were interesting, but after all that came out in the wash, did you learn anything that you would have done differently had you have known about it?
1: Well, I think this is going to sound really tactical and, and, and I still have time to address it. I think the the best transition stories involved you know the older generation really selling having fi- you know i mean getting their money out of the business you know uh, and having the younger generation literally buy it so you know there's obviously the option where you gift stock or whatever and that's a decision that you know each individual is free to make but i feel like the 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 best transition stories almost always involved a, a financial you know stake in the game on the part of the uh, the, the successor generation and I don't know if that was surprising to me. That was more convicting to me that I need to I need to address that. That's hard to do. And then those are hard conversations to have. And, you know, one quote I, I had from, from one company was simply this because they'd had a tough experience with, a, you know, a stepmother is money does weird things to people. And yeah, it does weird things in the best of families. Right. And so it's a hard conversation to have. But if you don't have it, it's just like leaving the elephant in the room and you're asking for resentments. So I think the, the best stories were those where the financial plan was really, really clear and successful. And, and I, need to, I, I need to myself make sure I take that seriously.
0: Well, let's get into the nuts and bolts of your presentation because you actually gave us a process in what we should be doing. You said we need to start with why. We need to self-assess, and we need to get and use resources. So I thought we could start with that. When you say start with why, what do you mean?
1: Well, I I took that from the title of a book by an author named Simon Sinek, Design for Leaders. And I think that sometimes, especially for those of us who've been doing this a long time, you get stuck in the day-to-day grind of, of what you're doing and how you're doing it. You know, the job of treating water, the job of taking care of customers. Um, and you can get in that grind and forget or take the passion that you had when you started the business. You, you tend to take that for granted. So Cynic's point, from a leadership point of view, if you're just going through the motions, not even realizing you're going through the motions, your your company's going to follow you and they'll just go through the motions as well. And eventually, just going through the motions is going to provide mediocre service. And that's what none of us want to do. And so his encouragement is to start with why, just to refocus a company culture as to what made it not just successful, but, you know, what made it exciting to work for, you know. And then when you figure out, OK, how's the next generation going to survive, it's worth doing the work to say, OK, what was what was this like driving principle, you know, this core value, whatever you want to call it, that, you know, my dad, for example, had that, that uh, worked for him. That not only work for him, but then work for people who who saw something in him and wanted to follow that. And then what do I do with that? Um, and how does that translate into uh, into the next generation? So that's work that is like it's going to feel like you know I got to go service this account. I've, I've got to make sure billing's correct. You know, blah blah blah. And so to to be intentional about you know, getting away from the office, whatever it looks like, and saying, okay, we're going to sit around and brainstorm, you know, why we exist. It sounds pretty existential. We found that really helpful. And, you know, it's not that easy. (laughs) It's not, it takes hard work to get it uh, to a succinct point where you can clarify it, you know, in a vision statement or passion statement or whatever. Uh, But I have found, as we've done this work over the last couple of years, it's been some of the most important work we've done.
0: I recently interviewed Cliff Robinson of Chick-fil-A. He's the COO. And he said when they sat down and started clarifying you know, their why, what
1: their mission was, everything started to come together for them. And I think that's true for us. We've gone through a lot of organizational upheaval over the last few years and really at a high level at the, at the, at the management team level. And as we've made those changes, it sort of forced us to say, okay, you know, what are we doing and why are we doing it? You know? And yeah, I mean, sometimes, sometimes when you find yourself in a really difficult situation, it's helpful to, to remember that's just an opportunity for you to get better. Um, that's definitely been our case because we had to stop and say, okay, how did we get to this point? And, and, you know, how do we get back to why we exist? You know, what's, what's our reason why? So, uh, yeah, I mean, I totally get it. does change everything. You don't see it. Nece- you don't see it in like sales the next day. You know, you don't see it in um, I mean, nothing gets better overnight, but it becomes a guiding principle that you stick by as, as you say, OK, this is how we're going to build or this is how we're going to redirect the culture. So um, I agree with what with what he said.
0: Yeah, Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why, is one of my favorite books. He does a great job of explaining to you how you can explain to people that buy your wares how you explain their why. And he uses Apple Computer, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., I think the Wright Brothers are in there. It's a fantastic book. In fact, I'm going to try to put the TED Talk that he did on my show notes page so people can see exactly what we're talking about. I'm curious, have you read his book, Leaders Eat Last? Some of it, yeah, I didn't finish it, but I did. Yeah, he's just fantastic. He came to Atlanta not too terribly long ago and unfortunately I wasn't able to get tickets to go see him, but he is a fantastic author. Uh, He's done several Ted Talks. So Nation, if you're out there and you're in some sort of leadership role, he really does a great job of summing up what the mindset of a true leader, in my opinion, needs to think
1: like. You know, if I can, I'll just tell one anecdote from there, and maybe this benefits smaller water treaters out there. So you mentioned the the, the Wright brothers. At the same time, the Wright brothers were trying to figure out how to fly a plane. I think his name was Samuel Langley. And he was just this high profile, I want to say, professor of technology, like at MIT, well-funded, well-known Uh, connected politically um, and he was very publicly trying to be the first person to fly. And so he had all these resources and yet the Wright brothers just had like, you know, people from whatever small town in Ohio they were from, you know, they had no resources, but what they had was a, a common, a common goal together. And they won the race, right? Because they had a they had a reason why. Langley's reason why was to gain fame and fortune. The Wright brothers was to do something no one had ever done before, and and that was a much more compelling vision. And Cynic talks about that in the book. But I love that because you know water treaters, whatever our size, but generally you know um, we worry sometimes because we're smaller in corporate purchasing and you know the big players gobbling up smaller companies. But you know if their why tends to get Uh, fuzzy and your why is focused, you know, I'll put my chips on the people who understand why.
0: That's a great point. And there's so much that can come when you understand your why as an owner, but then also when your people understand that why it empowers them to make decisions when you're not there. And in most times, those decisions are going to be even better than the ones that you would have made. Well, your next process was self-assess, and you gave us three areas to do that. You said there was family dynamics, organizational transition, and financial. Can we speak on each one of those?
1: And when I did this, um, I I rehearsed the talk the night before. My my wife and my daughter and daughter-in-law were in, in town with us, and I said, okay, so which one of these three, the family dynamics, the organizational transition, or the financial part makes you a little bit, you know, twitch a little bit? And my daughter right away said family dynamics <laughs> because she knows, like, hey, hard family conversations are not easy, as I said before, for the best of families. You know, in the paper and in the talk, we reference really two parts of family dynamics to pay attention to. One of these is, is the successor's credibility. So, you know, let's talk about my story, I guess. I think when I started with the company... I was 25. Right. So I was I, you know, I had my engineering degree and MBA really thought I was pretty cool. The people in the company, though, remembered me as this high school and college kid making deliveries. And they also knew I was the boss's son. They had no idea if I had any ability to do anything. And my dad was still pretty active. And so it was important for me to figure out how to earn credibility. Uh, Number one, I had to believe in myself. Now I, I came in with a lot of confidence. It helped that I worked for another company, I think, and um, you know gained some confidence there. But then I also had to earn what 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 I called on, in the talk external credibility. So I had to get other people to actually begin to believe that yeah, I could be someone they could follow someday. That's so important to get credibility, and it's up to the successor. So the you know the younger generation has to take that responsibility, but then the older generation can really help that transition by, you know, giving him chances to demonstrate leadership or to demonstrate technical competency by not bailing them out. That's probably a huge one. Maybe you went through that yourself, but it's sort of like if the dad rushes in and bails out the son every time, I mean, he's never going to get a chance to earn external credibility. In my case, it was exact opposite regarding that. He, My dad loved to watch me fail, <laughs> and uh, um, I hated it took it personally but I will tell you that every time I screwed something up I learned that much faster you know what I was doing so so internal external credibility like uh, th- that's a, a big piece of the family dynamics I-, I would say and then I think another part of that is um you know the this idea of of letting go and so you have to kind of have a, an idea um as the like in my generation I have to be willing to let go even if I'm not really sure that I can trust you know, the people who are taking over. And that lack of trust could be because they aren't ready from an ability point of view, but they could be more than ready. And yet I have to deal with the reality that I'm afraid to let go, that I'm entrusting my financial future to uh, my kids, for example. And there's a pride piece that says, hey, no one can do this job as good as me. So, So those are two kind of examples of family dynamic conversations that I mean, frankly, need to be ongoing.
0: Tom, do you think that part of the conversation is just so difficult because you're talking about somebody not being here anymore?
1: There's definitely a piece of that, you know? And, and, and I think then, so in the, in, the, in the best families, you know, where you don't want to see your parents go away, but you also want to be able to spread your wings. Yeah, there's definitely a, a conflict there. Yeah, so yeah, there, there, is, there is that piece, uh, no, no doubt. I think it's more than that, but I think that's part of it.
0: I of course started my own company, so I didn't go through this with my father. But both my grandfather and my father have passed away, and they both looked at that so incredibly differently. My grandfather had absolutely everything planned out, so when it did happen, you know, I knew where everything was. He had uh, things written down, instructions on what to do. Now, my father. He never wanted to talk about that. We actually had conversations about what would happen in the event that, that he did pass away, and he never wanted to talk about that. So I could just imagine if we did own a water treatment company together, that he would have passed and
1: everything would have been up in the air, and I don't know if we would have survived that or not. That's my experience. So my dad died when he was 74. And if you knew him, he would have told you he planned to live to be a hundred, right? So if you're gonna to live to be a hundred, I don't really need to do any financial planning or estate plan. Uh and so he died with um really no estate plan. Now I had been in the business at that point for about well, I had been president for like seven years. So in terms of the day-to-day operation of the business, um, you know, I had a I had a pretty good handle on that. There were a lot of estate things that were gonna be taxing, but I say I should say taxing in quotes, because not having any estate planning, he also didn't really have any financial estate plan. And, you know, you hear horror stories of uh, what happens when that's the case, because you're going to pay estate taxes. And it all comes down to how a business is valued. And in our case, we just were fortunate that, you know, our appraisal was appraised really, really low and the IRS accepted that appraisal. And so we had enough cash in my dad's profit sharing to pay estate taxes. But if it had been valued at what the market value was at the time, we would have had to sell the business. So it's not an easy conversation for, let's say, a son to have with a father about, hey, dad, I need this opportunity. You know, This is part of my credibility building process. The other thing that we talked about was, especially in extended families, is this idea of of good owners versus bad owners. And so there are there are good owners who see themselves as stewards of a resource that they care deeply about their customers and employees. Um, they view their job as a responsibility and not as an entitlement. And you know, by far, probably everyone I talk to is in that camp. But you also hear stories about, say, an owner who's not involved in the business, could be a cousin or an uncle, whatever the case may be, stepmother, and they only view the business as an asset to sort of be milk. They don't care about the employees. They become not only a cash strain on the business, but a huge emotional and mental distraction. And so it's best to, as early in the process as you can, identify someone who really shouldn't be owning the business, you know, because they're just not gonna they're gonna always be kind of a thorn in the side and, and have that frank conversation too, and then execute a financial plan to get them out. Because a few stories, there are a few stories involving lawsuits. And you know it's bad enough that that affects the business but it, it wrecks family relationships as well and uh so again having having the hard conversation it's hard but uh will always be better for having had it rather than avoiding it
0: would you say it's only hard at first and then you get through that
1: my guess from people talking to me what well, is that it's hard all the time until you're done you know so you know maybe the whole transition process takes 2 years or 3 years i mean it can easily take that or more more it's like a day to day discipline you know and so discipline sometimes not easy it's just that I, again i heard repeatedly from the interviews when they were done with it though you know they ranked i asked people to score what they thought of the uh, success of the transition process. And so many people scored it a 10 out of 10. But when they were in it, a few people would say it felt like it was three out of 10, you know, because it just was like, God, is this ever going to end? Are we ever going to get to a, you know, resolution on this point? Maybe that means the score goes up when you actually get through it. (laughs) That is what it means. That's exactly what it means.
0: (laughs) So you mentioned step two was organizational transition. Can you talk a little bit about that? yeah two pieces to
1: that so I, I mentioned the letting go piece, and the biggest thing to say about that is face your fears. you know people who are in uh, an ownership position of a water treatment company are you know th- they have this exalted status, even if they don't have an ego themselves they're still up on a pedestal, and that's easy and then that's it's an isolating place, but then there's a persona that you feel like you have to maintain, and admitting that you're afraid of anything is 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 can be viewed as a sign of weakness but I think that it's okay, it's actually, I think, healthy to admit that you're afraid of letting go. You got to deal with that because the trust issue then becomes what's going on inside of you, not so much how the organization is running. So face the fear of letting go, number one, um, and that's your job. Secondly, is pay attention to how the leaders are being developed. And there's a variety of of, uh, resources for this, but it's to be intentional. So um, I'll say, like in our case, both my son and my son-in-law have been in, in, uh, structured programs and in one-on-one mentorship. And in the case of one-on-one mentorship, you know, I'm not involved. And frankly, probably some of the days I'm a topic of conversation, <laughs> like, you know, they're frustrated and they naturally need a place to be able to talk about that stuff. So developing leadership skills and then developing technical skills. So, an obvious example of that is, is having the successor generation get their CWT certification. But you need a leadership plan because you might be fine with letting go, but you're not going to trust the business to someone who, who doesn't have the character that you know they don't have and who doesn't have the technical competence. You want to make sure there's a plan to get that. Lots of resources there. But again, you got to be sort of intentional because you're saying, I'm saying to Reed, hey, Reed, you need to grow in this area. And we are, we're good at talking like that, but you know that can be a painful conversation. So in terms of, of the whole area of um, organizational transition, that's a big piece.
0: Tom, you mentioned meeting with a third party, and I've been doing that for years. Uh, something I like to say on the show is you don't know what you don't know. And I actually learned that from my business coach, Tim Fulton. And he has recommended so many wonderful books for me to read when it comes to business. And I remember one of them was called Dance in the End Zone. And I can't remember what the subtitle was. It was something like the Business Owner's Exit Planning Playbook or something like that. It had a football theme. Uh, He said there were four ways that you can transition a business. There was one that he called Passers. And passers looked for a family member in their company that they could transition to. There was an Audi and an Audi looked for an outside third party that they could sell to there was an any, and an any was looking for a trusted employee that they could transition to. And then the fourth one was called a squeezer. They just really didn't care what happened to the business when they were gone. They were just going to squeeze every last drop out of it. I'm curious, in your research and developing this paper, did you find that
1: those were four? Did I leave some out? What do you think? I think it's actually a pretty inclusive list. And um, I probably heard stories of all four of those. You know, the multigenerational kind of tact of the paper refers to, I guess you call it the passers, right? Trying to get it to the next generation. But there was one not so good story where there was a son intending to inherit the business and his father sold it uh, to someone else. So instead of passing, he went to being an Audi. That was hard to hear. But again, he survived it. Right. He, he survived it and came out of it stronger. But I, I yeah, I, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. I don't think I also heard some companies who don't necessarily have a family member to pass it to who are looking at um, it could be employees. So, you know, it could be an ESOP, for example, or, you know, a key management member or a key management team that could um, could could do the exit strategy. And then there were a couple businesses where there wasn't a, a successor identified or the company might have been smaller. And the squeezer, I mean, that's that's probably not fair to describe these companies this way. But they realized that this is what they were going to do until they closed the doors and they were OK with that. That was the best option they saw. So I, actually, I, I heard all four examples.
0: Did you hear one more than another?
1: Well, definitely the passing. Uh, because I think the the interest even in talking to me was people who ha- are in the middle of the same thing that I'm going through.
0: And then, of course, there's the financial component to that. Can you speak a little on that?
1: That is be intentional and, and deal with a, a very sensitive subject because you want a clear financial plan. And I think it's very appropriate for the existing generation or the current generation to want to get their investment out. In fact, If they don't, they run the risk of of setting up a really unhealthy relationship 20 or 30 years from now. So one story to that point, um, there was somebody in their 50s talking to them and successful, and I think they they love their parents, but um, wanting to invest in the business. But there really hadn't been any kind of financial transfer. And so now the the, uh, 80-year-old parents, this was still their livelihood. And so they're dependent on that livelihood. They've gotten used to it. And they're reluctant. To invest in the business growth. Now, I actually get their point of view. You know, at 80, I think I would feel the same way. But if they had had a financial plan identified that worked, you know, let's say 30 years ago, neither, you know, the child nor the parent would be in this position. So the financial thing is just simply this have a clear exit, have it in writing. It might involve a buy sell agreement. You might have to spend money on lawyers, God forbid. And have a goal, I think, and I heard this a lot. Have a goal that, okay, I need to get my money out of the business. It's the right thing to do, but I don't want to burden my son or my daughter. And and I heard I heard stories more than one story where, you know, the owner slowed down the amount of money or they reduced it so that they didn't put a unnecessary burden on the successor generation. So simply put, you have a clear, written financial exit strategy and just have a commitment that you won't make it a financial burden on the next generation.
0: I'm curious of all the people you interviewed, how many actually had a buy and sell agreement?
1: Yeah, more than I thought. But I would say out of 22, I, I would say at least six or seven.
0: Yeah. And when you think about a document like that, the things that I would think of, I'm not going to think about everything that an attorney would think of. I recently went through this process and he brought things into the picture that I just wouldn't have thought of. And then also ways to calculate the worth of the business.
1: Yeah. And that has to be part of a of a buy-sell agreement is, is a independent valuation. Or you can just agree ahead of time as long as everybody's in agreement and you put it in writing we're going to value this business at whatever, a certain multiple of earnings or a dollar for dollar sales, whatever an agreed upon measure is. You can do that, but you have to all have agreement. The flip side of that is, you know, to pay a valuator, which will cost more money, but that's definitely probably a more independent and probably objective appraisal.
0: The last thing that you recommended that everybody use during this process was to get good resources. What are some of the
1: resources you recommend? Well, I'm going to say number one for me, it's kind of get some advisors around you who you trust. It could be people in the community who are successful business owners. It could be, could be your accountant. It could be a financial planner. It could be a friend that you trust. But open yourself up to, to like the wisdom of a group and, and be intentional about that. Don't really think you can figure this out because it's a very, te- especially when you get to the financial piece of this, it's a very technical subject. So there, there are a lot of peer groups that you can be a part of. For me, you know, I've been part of an advisory group now for five years. It's been, I will say, simply life changing. But one of the areas that they will help hold me accountable in is, you know, the formation of an advisory board somewhere down the road. So that's the best wisdom, I think, for the whole process is to get some advisors on your team who you trust. There are also a lot of resources available in the industry. I listed a bunch in the paper, but for example, you've heard of Patrick Lencioni. so he ha- he's a leadership author, and he has an organization called the Table Group, and, and they will help set up strategic planning you know for companies that's what they exist to do. Um, we've talked well, we might talk about EOS. that's another system that's popular. Frankly, there are a bunch of them out there. But be intentional about looking for them. There are national resources, but there are a lot that are local. The other category of resources I ought to throw in here, too, is so So I needed to get wisdom. I needed to get people that uh, could hold me accountable. But then, you know, going back to the uh, leadership development piece, look for resources for your your the next generation who needs development. Right. So like what kind of mentor do they need? What kind of, um, you know, business training do they need? Is it at a local university for us in Chicago? Loyola University's Graduate School of Business has a really excellent family business center. I also, there were two different people who mentioned, and I'm not going to be able to think of the name of it. It was Goldman Sachs. It was a Goldman Sachs leadership training program. And two people just raved about that. So there's lots of resources for kind of that leadership development piece too. But, you know, don't assume that you're going to develop your son or daughter because you know so much. <laughs> There's a lot of dynamics there, you know. Get some wisdom around that and, and take advantage of that as well.
0: You mentioned Patrick Lencioni. I had somebody from the Table Group interview on the show. He was actually episode 45. His name was Rick Packer. And I was just so impressed with everything that Patrick Lencioni wrote. And it's it's amazing because when you, we're getting ready to talk about EOS, but when you look at what Patrick Lencioni writes versus uh, Vern Harnish of scaling up versus Geno Wickman of traction—they're so similar.
1: They are, and so yeah, my experience is they all—they all are are focused on the same principles. It's just, if nothing else, it's a language. Uh, it, it's you know, it's clear language around those principles. Lencioni's book on that subject is called The Advantage.
0: It sounds like we have a very similar reading list. Sounds like it. I'm curious, when is the best time to start talking about a transition like this? Yesterday. Understood. (laughs) Well, we brought up EOS, so I want to get straight into that because you and I immediately connected on EOS. I've been doing EOS for a little better than five years, and you guys,
1: uh, how long? It's about us, too. I think we started in 2014.
0: Okay, so for those of you out there in the Scaling Up Nation that don't know what we are talking about, we are talking about the entrepreneurial operating system. And that was from a book that Gino Wickman wrote called Traction. And I just got so much freedom when I read that book. And I would have never heard of that book had it not been from the Vistage uh, format that I go to every single month and I meet with other business owners and somebody recommended that to me. And while reading that book, it gave me the freedom to realize that I didn't have to be good at absolutely everything that has to happen in the company. And there are other people that could do that, but you have to have a set of parameters to make sure that everybody is doing everything that they're supposed to be doing We're all tracking toward a particular number, and we have a way of knowing where everything is at any moment in time. And that all boiled down was the entrepreneurial operating system. I've heard several water treatment companies that use EOS, and I've heard lots of other companies that use EOS because EOS does not care what type of business that you have. You just plug in what you do. To it. Uh, I've had a couple of people on the show to talk about EOS. And Tom, that's one of the great things about having your own podcast. You get these high level people like yourself that you could just get free advice from. And uh, two of those people were Mark Williams. He was on episode 38. And then Mike Payton, who I believe is now the CEO of EOS, he was episode 85. So now that the nation knows what EOS is, I'm curious.
1: Why did you decide that you needed something called EOS? Yeah, and it was um, a foundational decision. And I, I don't mean to make that sound more grand than it was. It was super, nothing more important, I would say. So um, I joined a group a group similar to Vistage called Convene uh, back in 2014. And I would say I joined the group somewhat out of desperation because we were as large as we had ever been as a corporation in terms of sales, um, but we weren't. Nearly as profitable as I thought we should have been, culture-wise, we weren't where we wanted to be, and so I was kind of grasping. And so I got invited into this group called Convene, and one of the first meetings, just like you, exactly like you, um, one of the presenting companies said, "This is a system we're using at our at our business," and I'm like, you know, that's what we got to do, you know. So I got excited. I read the Traction book, just like you, and I got to a place um, in the book where they describe documenting what they call your core processes. And I don't want to get into the details, but basically he talked about at the end of this process, you're going to have a binder that's going to be called, you know, the HOH way. And that sold it for me. I'm like, that's what I've wanted for a long time. I want to codify what I think is the HOH way, like what makes us different in the industry, you know, and and that had been particularly elusive, but now here was a system that really, if you just followed, it was going to allow you to get to that place. So we started that process and um, it's, just kind of like with this whole subject today, I guess we can say, you know, it's, it's simple, but it's definitely not easy. And, you know, our leadership team has, you know, it's about a hundred percent turnover. I think there's one person on our leadership team who was there when we started in 2014. One of the big pieces, Trace, and you know, this is like a kind of an accountability chart. And if you're going to do this well, you have to deal with, okay, do I have the right people in the right seats? And that can involve even in the leadership of the company. And that's where you need the accountability to say, okay, you've identified that, you you know, you might have the right person, high character, but they're just in the wrong seat and you got to make a change. And a lot of what we've done started with that, but it's really transformed how we do things. And um, like I say, I mean, it's just key to how we operate these days.
0: I will tell you that when we first started EOS, we had some pushback. And we later found that those people weren't necessarily the right people for our company. And they ended up leaving because of the things that EOS laid out. And today, I still keep in contact with some of them. They're so much happier working in another field. And now we found somebody that is the right person, and they are just doing amazing work. Had it not been for EOS, we wouldn't have found the right person for that seat. But even worse, there would be a person in that seat that wasn't happy coming to work every day. EOS is just amazing. The accountability chart and all the different things. Uh, If you're curious about that, we talk about all those tools on episodes 38 and 85. Uh, But I'm curious. I shared a little bit about my experience. What happened when you guys started
1: EOS? Was everybody for it? No, <laughs> because it was uncomfortable. I mean, you, you go through the, the work and I mean, number one, there's the, the regular habit of meetings and uh, no one likes meetings, but yeah, meetings are the lifeblood of an organization. It's not that you don't need meetings, you just need productive, efficient meetings. So we had to get in the rhythm of meetings and we started holding people more accountable because if you're going to follow the system, accountability uh, is part of it, not just for financial targets, but it's just, you know, do what you say you're going to do. People didn't like that. I would say there was pushback for that. We had uh, a Salesforce, uh, and the Salesforce leader was not implementing it to our entire Salesforce. So half of our company (laughs) really wasn't involved in the process. So yeah, there was I would say a lot of pushback. It does start though with you know with you, and it starts with the leadership team. And so you you know for us it was a process of getting on the same page as a leadership team because then. The phrase is you can cascade what needs to be communicated down throughout the organization and trust that it's going to happen. Whenever you're dealing with change and whenever you're dealing with like restructuring an organization, you know, there's always going to be pushback.
0: What are some differences that you see today that came directly from using the entrepreneur operating system?
1: Well, you know, my employees, when they listen to this, they'll think this is funny, but our communication has gotten better. If people were going to say, you know, what's our single biggest challenge today, they're probably going to say it's communication. So we have a lot of work to do, (laughs) but it is so much better. And it's better because of the rhythm um, of EOS to have, you know, weekly meetings and quarterly offsite meetings. So our communication is better. I think that our accountability is better than it's ever been in our history. Again, that makes some people uncomfortable and it forces some hard decisions. But everybody wants everyone else to be held accountable, you know, and and so it's a really healthy thing. So I think the accountability piece has been good. I would say at this point, Trace, maybe the single biggest thing today versus when we started in 2014 is I have a leadership team. We're all engaged. We all are on the same mission. Whereas when I started, there was even pushback on the leadership team. Now, it doesn't mean we always agree. Um, And we've had some, we have heated exchanges, you know, fairly regularly in our Monday morning meetings, but probably the biggest change is I think the leadership team of HOH now is as strong as it's ever been. And it has a whole lot to do with the structure of EOS.
0: You've been using EOS for five years. What do you know now that you wish you knew when you were implementing the process?
1: I don't know. What comes to mind is I wish I knew then how hard it was going to be, especially regarding people. But on the other hand, if I really knew how hard it was going to be regarding, you know, people decisions, uh, you know, some, you know, that I didn't want to make, I might not have made them, you know. So I think that when, you know, the, the thing about EOS is they give you a really simple formula and they don't sugarcoat that it's going to be hard, but sometimes they just don't communicate how hard it is. Much like this whole idea of, you know, multi-generational planning, right? You're glad when you've gone through the process, when you're in the middle of it, though, it, it, it's not fun. Maybe a heads up would have been nice. (laughs) Well, they probably wouldn't have sold as many books if they did that. (laughs) Exactly,
0: Yep. Last year, you spoke at the Association of Water Technologies Business Owners Conference, specifically on EOS. What kind of questions was
1: the audience asking you? I remember the questions for me regarded the organizational changes that I, I tried to be transparent about. So let me get back to the accountability piece. For us as an organization, EOS has been an important part uh, probably an even more important part is this advisory group called Convene that I'm in, because what happens is if I'm not held accountable to make hard decisions, the data that EOS provides you is useless, right? And so um, what I, I shared a little bit last year was, you know, this you know major changeover of our leadership team, and that got people's attention because I'll tell you, Trace, like in every organization, unfortunately, well, it's just human nature, right? You're going to have EOS uses this term, I'll explain it for people, the right person in the right seat. So the right person is defined as the individual who uh, lives to your core values. We have four core values. And so we've got a lot of right people in our organization. I'm a huge percentage, very proud of that. And then are they in the right seat, i.e. are they in the right job? Do they Do they get the job? Do they actually want the job? Do they have the ability to do it? So we do this right person, right seat analysis. And You're talking about messing with people who you're probably friends with, long term employees who you care deeply about. And you recognize that they're maybe really not the right person. More often in our case, they weren't in the right seat. And so I think the reaction I got at the owners meeting was some people were just thinking to themselves, you know, I've got I've got one or two people in my organization that I feel that way about. And so they asked a lot about how that was. I think that it's always the people. So EOS, you know, gives you metrics and there's six different pieces to the system, but there's a people component. And without a doubt, it's always, uh, it's always people. So that's what I remember from that is just, they're looking to me uh, sincerely saying, how do I do this with my team?
0: I remember having conversations with other Association of Water Technologies members, and I would talk to them about EOS And a lot of them would say, oh, we already do that. We already do that. And when you really talk to them about what they're doing, they're not doing anywhere near that. So I was just curious if that came up at all.
1: In New Orleans, it did not. But I see that a lot in in kind of the EOS community that I'm in. Again, I think that's human nature. This is going to sound like a bizarre analogy, but I deal a lot in in kind of the recovery world. And And so picture an addict who knows he needs to stop drinking and he says he stopped drinking, but really on the side he still is. You know, he's not really embraced the program, right? And so you have people who are kind of and we would use the phrase he's working at recovery, but he's not really in recovery. So the same thing applies to EOS and a variety of other disciplines. You know, you're kind of working at EOS, but you haven't really, <laughs> you know, bought into um the system. And it shows. It shows in the frustration that comes out in terms of a lack of results and a lack of focus and stuff.
0: Earlier, you spoke about level 10 meetings, and that is how EOS really redefines the meeting. Most meetings that we sit through outside of EOS could have been done in an email. Level 10 meetings are exactly what they need to be, and they're actually really great meetings. One of the things that I'll do is I'll sit in on level 10 meetings of other businesses and they'll do the same thing with me and I'll just critique what's going on and they'll do the same. And I remember I was sitting in at one company and they had about seven people on their leadership team, which I thought was a bit much, but they didn't ask me about that. But what they did is they, everybody gave the rating a 10 and at best I would have given it a four. So I'm curious, when you are developing EOS, do you feel that it is of worth to find someone else that's uh, going through EOS? And uh, I'm wondering if you've done that.
1: Probably haven't talked to other water treatment companies doing EOS, but we've paid a lot of attention to, um, I think they're called facilitators, you know, the, the consultants who really help set it up. You know, a, a piece of advice would be, if people are contemplating this, you know, take your advisor's advice seriously. So we talk about working at EOS versus embracing it. One way to embrace it is to do what your advisor tells you. Don't overthink it. Don't reinvent the wheel. We don't use an advisor now. We're on our own. But for the first two years, we really tried to follow exactly what they told us to do without overthinking it. And I think that was huge. And again, for me, I'm just going to say as, as president of the company, I need a board or I need some people who can hold me accountable to actually do what I'm saying I'm going to do. Again, and, and and that's a that's a really surefire way to know if the the program's getting implemented. Um, I'll talk to my EOS, you know, the guy who set us up originally, and I'll tell him where we're at, kind of the things we've been doing. And he's always very positive because he he knows our history and he's like, wow, you've really followed through on stuff. And that's always encouraging for me to hear.
0: We did bring up the Association of Water Technologies Business Owners Conference. You not only went there last year, you spoke last year. So for the listeners out there in the Scaling Up Nation, if they were to go to that, what can they expect?
1: I think the value for me has been, you know, it's a focused group of people who have kind of the same mission, right? So, you know, if you go to a, the AWT convention, you've got three tracks, could be technical, could be you know sales development and it could be an ownership track but you know the the ownership meetings that I've been at have been good because you're just with other owners so you're dealing with the issues that you probably most often deal with on a day-to-day basis and I think the committee's done a good job of providing resources to address those specific issues so it won't be you won't be talking about you know a technical problem or or a new product innovation you're going to be talking about you know, legal issues and, you know, estate planning issues, you know, whatever owners uh, have to deal with, you know, when they're not doing the business of water treatment. So it's a good, you know, it's always good to get away from the business. The phrase is, and I I don't think EOS invented this, but you want to be working on your business as opposed to in it, right? So when you're in it, it gets back to what we said originally. When you're in it, you're, you're, you're doing water treatment, But when you're working on the business, you're thinking about why you do water treatment. And so if you can get out of the office for a few days and go talk to a bunch of people who are in the same situation as you, that's always going to be a healthy thing to do.
0: And that's coming up February 10th through 11th on uh, 2020. Uh, That's going to be Clearwater, Florida, I believe. Right. Well, Tom, I know I could probably ask you a thousand other questions, but I know you have some other things that you have planned today. So I'm going to go straight to the lightning route if you're <laughs> ready for that. Sure. All right. So now if you can go back in time and visit yourself on your very first day as a water treater, what advice would you give yourself? Learn and be patient. What are the last three books that you've read?
1: I have read Norwegian mythology.
0: Interesting.
1: I have read a, a book on prayer, um, a couple books related to estate planning.
0: I'm curious, what's one of your favorite water treatment reference
1: books? Well, for me, uh, old school would be the best Handbook. Is that still in print? I don't know. I don't know, but I, I used it all the time. The other thing that might not still be in print that I use all the time, I don't know if you would remember this called the Permuted Handbook. I've never heard of that. Permuted was, I believe, a resin manufacturer back in the day, but they had just a super helpful handbook with a bunch of tables and conversion factors and a lot of uh, you know, ion exchange and resin uh, technology information. So for me, the resources were in the, in the dark ages, the Betts handbook and the Permuted handbook.
0: I interviewed Jay Farmery not too terribly long ago, and he turned me on to a book, and I don't remember the title, but the author was Leo Pincus. Does that ring
1: any bells? It does, yeah. I can't think of the title either.
0: That book is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, It's not in print anymore, and I found it used, but I did find it, and it is a very helpful resource. Eventually, Hollywood is going to learn about your life story. When they do,
1: who plays you? (laughs) Uh, Let's see. I should have an answer to that. I'm getting older. If he wasn't already older than me, I would want Sean Connery to play me. There you go. So more of a James Bond type <laughs> approach to that? Yeah. I mean, I think Sean Connery is, uh, is still very, very cool. And then my final
0: question, if you could talk to anybody throughout history, who would it be with and
1: why? It would be Jesus because he's the most important figure in history. And uh, I'd have a, a whole lot of questions for him.
0: Well Tom, I had a whole bunch of questions for you and I have a whole bunch more. So, I really want to thank you for coming on Scaling Up H2O and it is not out of the realm of possibility that I invite you back. It'd be my
1: pleasure. Trace enjoyed
0: it. Well Tom, I thought you did a great job at the Association of Water Technologies Convention. You brought all of that and more to the Scaling Up Nation and thank you for that. So, you know, I got to tell you, every time I think about generations, I get confused. I interviewed a gentleman last year. His name was Jeff Butler. And what he does is he tries to educate people on generations. I think he had some of the most simplistic and easy to understand definitions that I've heard. So if you want to check out episode 104, if you haven't already, that might be a great compliment to what you just heard. Now, the thing I really learned from Tom's data is that, you know, he talked to so many water treatment company owners and sons and fathers, and all that was based on was really preparing for the next step. What is the next step? And I think about that all the time on this show. Heck, in a couple moments, I'm going to plead to you to give me some ideas so I can fill in that next step. But I can't help but think there's some water treaters out there listening. There's some individuals out there listening, and they're thinking, I don't own my own company. So, did I just waste the last few minutes listening to this episode? And I don't think you did. I think you learned a lot more. You just might not know where to apply it. Think about it. Everything we do, there's always a next step. So are we actively thinking about what the next step is or are we just simply doing what we do day in and day out and we're letting the next step happen by default? Folks, if we are not proactively thinking about the next step, we might not like what naturally occurs. So I think we can all take a moment and just think about where are we going and is that destination where we want to end up. And it might just take a little change, it might just take a small tweak to a habit that we have. What are we doing? How is it affecting us? And where are we going to end up? If we don't like that, we need to change something. And the good news is we just realized it, we can affect it and we can take the destination to wherever we wanna go. Well, I told you it was coming. I am looking for more show ideas. People ask me here in Seattle, Washington, where do I get ideas from this show? And anything that interests me, I think, is good fodder for the show. I've got some good ideas from people that came up to me here in Seattle, Washington. You all know that I try to read a lot, so I can share that information with you on Scaling Up H2O. And the truth is, I I do read books, and, and I do that. I know how to read, but I don't have time to read What I do have time for is to take advantage of being in the car. So I turn windshield time into learning time. And when I'm not listening to a podcast, I am listening to Audible. There are so many book titles on Audible, and now I am able to listen to them when I have time to do so. Now, if you haven't tried Audible, I really think you will enjoy the service, and I can get you a free book and a free month by going to scalinguph2o.com forward slash Audible. Let me know what you think. And folks, you can even change the speed in which you listen to the books. So there's all sorts of tools on Audible. You can make notes on Audible. You can mark it as you're driving, even in a safe way, so you don't have to worry about taking your attention off the road. They've got a car app that helps you with that. Folks, Audible is a great service, and I know if you're not using it, you can use it to start reading again. And as I said, it is one of the ways that I get information for the topics on this podcast. But the number one way I get information for this podcast is from you. So if you have not done so, heck, even if you've done so, do it again. Go to ScalingUpH2O.com and send me a request for a show note. Just go to the show notes portion on the menu, fill that in, I will get it. We'll get that on the air or better yet, you can click on the send a voicemail button. I will get a recording of your voice asking your question. I will play that on the air and then we will answer that very question. So Nation, please help me help you make this show into your own private learning studio and I just got to say thank you so much for listening and I will talk to you next week on Scaling Up H2O. Nation, there's no doubt about it. It is lonely out there, but it doesn't have to be. There are groups that exist to help us help each other get to where we need to go faster than we can on our own. One of those groups is the Rising Tide Mastermind. The Rising Tide Mastermind is a group where we come together each and every week to make sure we're holding each other accountable to make it to the next level. We also read books together, we attend a live event together, and members enjoy quarterly one-to-ones with me. To find out if the Rising Tide Mastermind is right for you, go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind to learn more.